Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. No matter where you're listening to us from or how, sit down, get comfortable, ease the seat back, and enjoy today's episode. I was photographing in central Colorado, and I ran across another photographer, somebody that I knew from Instagram. So I want to welcome Courtney Nally to the show, but I want to real quick just let you guys know how exactly we met. So we were photographing a, a similar deer, the same deer, and we were both getting ready to walk back to the vehicles. And I just kind of looked back, and all of a sudden this buck decided he was going to walk down and get a drink of water. And so I made a beeline for this dock. And uh, Courtney was right there with me. He made a beeline for the same dock. And so we spent about the next two or three minutes trying not to be the first one to go in the water because we had to hang <laughs> off the side of the dock. And I'll let Courtney share with you uh, his setup. I was off the side of the dock. I had to catch my favorite hat a couple times before I finally just took it off and threw it back on the dock. And I had to hook my feet underneath a bench so I could get over far enough to get an angle where I could photograph this buck. But it was an interesting meeting. Again, welcome Courtney Nally. Seeing your, your work online, that was the first time that we met in person. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the podcast. I listen to it pretty regularly. So, but it was great meeting you. And like you said, yeah, we were in central Colorado and that was a way to meet. <laughs> you yeah. called it. You're like, the deer's going to the water. Well, you want to see three grown men run, have a deer <laughs> going to the water in perfect lighting like that. <laughs> so. Well, hold on a sec. Did you guys actually get the shot or was it just a, a hang off the dock kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, got, we the got the shot, and then Courtney posted it on another site out of uh, Montana Fish and Game, I think, who yeah. reposted yours. And some yeah, guy, I had about 10 people message me and say, hey, some guy stole your shot. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty <laughs> similar when you're sitting two feet away from each other. That's yeah, that's the, the one, shot. Yep. yep, that's it. All right, y'all, you need to go to Courtney's uh, Instagram page, and it's like three or four posts down. Well. Maybe six or seven posts down. I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's mule deer. Yeah, mule deer reflection shot. Couldn't be a better setup. Uh, like Ron said, Ron hooked his feet on the bench there. I hooked my feet in the metal railing and kind of leaned over. You're just waiting to see which gonna, who's going to go in the water first and or a camera gear in the water first. <laughs> <laughs> you get ready to throw your camera gear back on the dock and go take a nice dunk early in the morning like that. But it was fun. It was a fun setup, and that's how me and Ron met. So it's pretty cool to meet him like that in that kind of a situation. Yeah, absolutely. So does this mean that you get, you do a lot of traveling for your photography stuff or do you, you know, you're, you're based where in Washington, right? Yeah, I'm based in central Washington. So I do, uh, we, I mean, we have our fair share of game here, but I do travel. I travel Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, uh, Canada and stuff like that. So walk us through a trip like that because it's not what do you get like weekends or do you say, Oh, I'm going to do a five day trip. How does that work? So what I do is I'll plan usually about eight months in advance. I have pretty, I have about six weeks of vacation through work. So I'll plan my trips accordingly. I'll take about seven to 14 days each trip, depending what I want to photograph. So if it's an elk rut, I'll you take 10 days 
just because I know I can travel around to different locations um, and photograph different different locations, different animals. So I'm not photographing just the same animals on each setting. Um, so like, for instance, last year I did Canada for, I think I did Canada 14 days last year, uh, waited a month, did Montana for a week, waited another month and then did Colorado and Wyoming for a week. And then that pretty much uses up the majority of my vacation for, I just try and hit the rut seasons as they come into, as they come into season. So. Is that your favorite thing? To photograph or is that just what you're starting right now as your portfolio to build and then ultimately add a bunch more or just give us a snapshot into what you do or what your favorite things to photograph are and and why you why you choose the species you choose um i love mule deer and i love bighorn sheep um mule deer i just like the way they look i mean their antlers are some the characteristics of a mule deer uh bighorn sheep their postures it just speaks so much of their personality and their strength and just the posture. Each pose that they present is just incredible. And it's there's so many different poses that they give. And you could photograph one ram and never have the same posture in an hour, two hours, or even a week of that ram. So I love the different varieties that they give you in each shot. Uh, mule deer, I just like the way they look, the characters. I like, I like trashy mule deer. I like kickers and stuff like that. So that's what really draws me into them. Uh, the other thing I like to photograph is owls. I finally had my first chance at photographing a great gray owl uh, last spring. So and I love owls. They're fun to you photograph. If that was your first time, you didn't waste that opportunity. You got some amazing shots. <laughs> actually, now, so was that in some of the old growth stuff out in Washington or was that out this way? Um, that's actually in um, Oregon, Northern, uh, what is it? Yeah, Northern or Oregon. I went in there and photographed. I had just three days to photograph, which is actually, a, that's a fun story to tell. So I went over, I had a trip planned. I had three days. I was going to make the most of it. I knew of some location, like areas of where these birds were hanging out. So I went in there, tried my luck. Well, I found the female up in her nest and didn't, I didn't really want shots of a female in a nest. So stood there all day. I think I, I got there at light and I stood there for probably six hours while I got poured down rain on and I had nowhere to sleep. I didn't rent a hotel, so I had the back of the car. I thought I would get the shots. I thought it was going to be a lot easier than it really was. So I thought I was going to get the shots and go home that night. Well, I didn't. So I went to bed, slept in the car soaking wet, woke up still wet, and sat. And I thought the male was going to come in for a photo. And it's like the feed to, to feed the babies and stuff, and he just didn't. So about 10 minutes after that, I was like, oh, I can't stand here anymore. I kind of lost patience. 10 minutes into my hike, after looking for the male, I actually found him in the tree. So I sat on him for about 45 minutes till he presented a decent photograph. I videoed him for just a little bit. And uh, he was inside a tree with branches covered in his face. So video was the best way to go on him on that situation. Well, actually probably 45 minutes after I've been sitting there, I kind of gave him his space. He started flying out from perch to perch. And I didn't know how uh, receptive they were of people, but holy, he flew five feet over my head multiple times. So, and then I just back up, fill the frame with them and photograph them. The moss shots that I got of them were just, I couldn't ask for anything better than those shots with the dark background and stuff like that. So, and that's, those are pretty much straight out of camera, very, very minor editing, um, so that's pretty much what I got on him of those. And I was happy. So after about three hours of taking some pictures of him, I went home and called it a day. And it's only a, it's a few hour drive. 
from my house, so it's well worth the drive. I'm going to go back up there this spring again and see if I can get more photos of them. There's in that area. There's multiple different settings that you can get, not just the moss, but where he was in the rain and stuff. He was just hanging out in the moss, and that was pretty much it. I didn't get him out in any meadows or anything. I'd so I think I'd take the moss over a meadow any day. Yeah, that moss really drew him into the photo with the green yeah. and stuff like that, and the dark background that was green. It was just. It was a perfect setting. I mean, it was a little bit higher ISO than I would have liked, especially with the camera setup I'm running. Uh, I run, I think I was running around 800 ISO, which is pushing the limit of my camera. But I mean, I still got great, incredible images that are very usable in any situation. I can print them. So, well, let's talk about that. Let's give people an idea of what you actually use for your setup. Okay, so I'm using. So if I'm not renting equipment, if using my own personal equipment, I'm using the Canon 7D Mark II. So on the ISO on those is if you run about 800, that's about pushing the limit of that camera. But I mean, most situations I run, I try and run anywhere from four to 640 anyways. And then I'm running a 400 millimeter prime lens, a 5.6, nothing too special, but it's lightweight, easy to, very easy to pack, put it on any tripod and it's stable. And then if I'm running my other lens, I'm running the 70 to 200 F4. So the, the 400, is it a straight 400 or 100 to 400? It's a straight 400. And it's a 5.6. So on the 7D, that's more like a, what, a 5.60 or something? Yeah, it is. Because you got yep. the crop yeah, factor. Yeah, with the crop. Yep, the 1.6 crop factor. Cool. That's pretty so, good. And, and that'll only get you to 800. What do you not like about going higher? Do you just get a lot of noise in the pictures or what? How, what's it do? Yeah, it does. It picks up a lot of noise. Once I get over 800, if I'm really pushing my luck at 1,000, if I know I'm going to use it for like a smaller print, or if, if I really want the shot, I will push it to 1,000. But it does. It does pick up a lot of noise. It turns grainy. Uh, anywhere from 1 to 400, there's really no difference in grain between 1 to 400. 640, you notice a very, very minor amount. 800 is max that I would want if you're going to do any kind of printing and stuff like that. I'm hoping so, that we could, they come out with something similar, but with a little bit better ISO in I the future. They do. I think they do. What about, so what do you do ultimately with your images? Are you, you know, if you're that concerned with the noise and stuff, are you looking about at doing big prints? Or are you trying to sell stuff to the editorial market? Do you put stuff online? What's your, what, what's your goal? So I do, I actually do big prints. Uh, my max print, I usually go up to is 24 by 36. And I do, I, I sell a decent amount. I mean, it pays for my trips and stuff, which is kind of cool. Um, but I have been, I've been trying to get in a few magazines. I've been in a couple, I have a couple coming, getting ready to come out in magazines also. Cool. So those smaller, like, prints like that you can run up to it a thousand iso more of like a documentary but it's a smaller photo so you really don't pick up that noise and stuff in a photo on a print on a magazine but if i want to print anything over like a 20 by 30 then i'll i'll, I'll see it most people to their eye won't see it but us being photographers and we're so picky with any of the stuff that we do anymore it's it kind of bothers me right Huh. I just haven't heard that much, but I've never used a 7D. I know a lot of people that use them and I just haven't had that conversation with somebody. So okay. it's interesting to, it's interesting to see how different people deal with ISO and, and what everybody's personal limit is. You know, I, yeah. I've gotten to the point now where it's like, I don't care. I'm just going to get whatever it takes to get the shot. Yep. And then if it's cool, good, but um, very seldom do I actually, well, I shouldn't say that. 
a lot of the clients that I have will actually, you know, they'll blow stuff up huge and it, and it always right. looks pretty good, but I'm not part of that process. So I don't know what they do. You know, I give them the raw images yeah, and then they obviously know what, how they're going to use them and how they're going to print them. So they probably make the just adjustments, but, um, it, it's just interesting. So, yeah, I'll run mine up to 3,200. Real quick, uh, going back real quick for our listeners, the, the Canon, um, crop sensor, the AP, APS-C sensor is 1.6. So you'd actually be getting a 640 out of a 400. Okay. And then I, Nikon is 1.5, but yeah, you're in over 600 millimeters with that at a five six aperture. That's a that's a pretty solid range for yeah, a prime that's for a prime that you can handhold because they are really light and compact. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, that's the trend nowadays too, right? If you have a light and compact and something that doesn't take for you know, everything you got just to get it packed in somewhere. That's, that's the way to do stuff. And yeah, when, you, when you can run the ISO up there, then five, six isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh? Right. So Courtney, let's dial it back a minute. Um, how did you get your start in photography then? As I understand it, it was kind of a family tradition, right? Yeah, so my dad does uh, portrait photography. Uh, he did weddings and stuff like that, uh, family photos. So one day I asked him, I was like, hey, for my birthday, I want you to come into the duck blind. I, I used to duck hunt avidly, and I wanted pictures of ducks coming into the decoys and locked in and nice lighting and stuff like that. Well, he didn't want to. It was too early, too cold. He didn't want to be near the water. So that was kind of thrown out the window real quick. So I ended up, I think, I don't know if it was that winter, but that spring I picked, I went and bought my first camera, which was actually the 7D, the, the original 7D. Picked it up, started watching a bunch of YouTube videos and taught myself from there how to do wildlife photography. My dad would teach me how to do some um, editing and stuff like that, uh, Lightroom stuff. And then I kind of brought it there, my own style, and then brought it out into the wildlife scenario instead of um shooting inside indoors and uh family portraits and stuff like that what got you into the wildlife why why did you go that direction i was grew up avid hunting i was an avid hunter and nothing makes a season last longer than being able to pick up a camera and hunt until january february for deer with a camera i can shoot multiple deer and maybe get to live another day and i can look for them hopefully the next year and keep photographing again so it kind of took over my most of my hunting anymore these days is with a camera i don't i don't hardly hunt unless it's a certain situation so that's so that's kind of why i've gotten into the photography the wildlife photography part is i hunted i love photographing i love being out there with the wildlife the conditions i love wintertime uh, fall and spring so I love being out there with the wildlife and watching them year round. So picked up a camera and started photographing them and documenting their behaviors. I mean, it's, it's a completely different ball game watching behaviors compared to trying to get close and stalking for hunting and harvesting animal. So people probably call me crazy for take, picking up a camera over hunting, but you know, I think that's a pretty common story actually. Yeah. I think that a yeah. lot of people grew up like that where, you know, at least back in the day when I started, it was, it was the exact same thing. You just get to hunt with a camera and 
it's just as much fun. And I think as a photographer, you learn a lot more about the wildlife. You know, I can't tell you how many times you get out there and you, you'll be talking to someone who actually hunts and you'll say, have you ever seen this behavior? Have you ever witnessed this? Um, one example is moose for me. You know, you, you follow them through the rut and you see all this behavior that a hunter is probably never going to see because if you're hunting, you're going to be trying to, to get that animal and once you see it, you try to get it and you don't pay attention to what's going on. Whereas we want to just see exactly and photograph everything that throughout that whole rut. So we see so much more. Yeah. And that's exactly where I get out of it is we see so much. I've explained to a few friends. It's you, you watch behaviors. Like a lot of guys, a, a mule deer, if they pin their ears back while well, you're on borrowed time, most hunters would never know that kind of a situation that, Oh, his ears are pinned back. You're on borrowed time. He's going to, he's about ready to take off. But sitting there watching them for days in, days out, I mean, you learn certain behaviors that they'll do, and you can really start reading what an animal's going to do. So how hard was it to go from, you know, being a hunter to being a photographer, and then did you have a mentor, or do you have a mentor, or did you just learn from by trial and error when you get out there and you're like, okay, I, I've got this whatever, I've got a elk, or I've got a bear, or I've got whatever out in front of me. I'm just going to see what I can get. And, you know, each time you do that, you learn something new or just kind of give us a, a brief uh, description of how you how you've progressed over time to from your starting point to where you're at now. So when I first started, I would just kind of go out and point and shoot, get what I got. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm getting incredible stuff. And then you start looking at other people's work and you're like, wow, I need to change some stuff. So my first year, I went to Wyoming, uh, Yellowstone and Wyoming, that, that whole area, Montana, Wyoming, and um, photographed. It was kind of a point and shoot. I wouldn't get close. I thought far shots were awesome. I didn't know about getting close. Well, I grew up bow hunting, so getting close to animals was what I loved. So learning that I could get closer to these animals and get pictures that were, I guess, a depth of field to really pull them away from the background was starting to set in. Then you see other, other guys' work. I mean, you've had a few people on here like Harlan, Jason, and all those guys. That Then you start seeing their work, and you're like, oh, gosh, I want, I want photos like that. Well, I got the opportunity to shoot with Jason um, three years ago in Colorado and we shot the elk rut together and then he he's awesome uh Jason he'll sit there and say this is what you need to look for maybe start trying to do something like this and he'll kind of critique which is awesome I love people that are willing to help and that have are in the situation that they they want to help you and get you better at like even the editing process and really to set your uh, subject away from the background over the last two years I've really been a lot less taking a lot less photos watching the situation and setting myself up for those situations it's whether it's getting in front of the animal and sitting on it or setting yourself up and having that animal come into you with that background that you've anticipated and you really want to be able to draw your subject away and the antlers or horns whatever you're photographing away from that background and then it, the contrast i mean setting your the composition setting your animal up in that photograph to really catch people's eye of what it what you're trying to tell in the story that's kind of what i've really been trying to progress in i'm still learning every day is a new day with different lighting and different subjects so it's never it's never ending and you're always learning which is what i love about it i love to learn so i mean in photography in the photography world you can learn about different things every day different subjects 
uh, lighting, because you're going to be in different lighting situations all the time. Uh, even throughout the day, you'll hit multiple different lighting situations. So it's just then, then it's knowing your camera equipment and being able to switch up on the go if you're trying to move on an animal. I haven't had the opportunity to photograph a lot of bears, which I, I really like to, but I know they're they kind of like to move around a lot and trying to get those and with their colors and pulling them away from the background is a little bit more difficult than if you have, cause I mean, they kind of hang out in trees and stuff like that. But that's my main thing is trying to get my subject away from the background, pulling them out, making the subject really pop is what I really like about that. Figuring out what to look for in my photos. So you mentioned, you mentioned lighting a couple different times. How much of that hanging out with your dad and learning what he did in the studio and how he set lighting up and that kind of thing translated over into how you view wildlife? Because I think if people scroll through your feed and they look at some of your uh, wood duck images, you can see that it's got kind of that studio feel. In fact, one that you posted recently, I think somebody commented that it looked like it was shot in a studio. Yeah, Jason that, did. You do you do kind of have that feel with uh, with some of the light that you get. So, how much of that came from growing up with a, a dad that was a studio photographer? I'm a lot of it. He told me to expose for your subject, and if you can't expose for your subject, make make your camera or use lighting to expose for your subject. Um, I don't use flash photography very often, but when the flash photography I use, so actually I'll go back to the wood ducks. The wood ducks, I set myself up in like one of those situations where I know the background's going to be dark and the subject will be out in that light. And I just hit, wait until, so I've been to the spot multiple times that I go and I've taken a few friends there and we set ourselves up in a perfect spot. The dark pines in the background are just perfect. The sun's coming down in the front. So it makes those wood ducks really, really pop and get their colors to pop against that dark background. Um, some people do think it's studio lighting, but those that situation, it's really not. That's actually just the perfect situation that I've actually come to figure out in that area that if I hit it the right time of day, the right uh, scenario, if there can't be cloud cover or nothing, because then you'll pick up that green, you'll see all the pines in the background. But um, if you hit it during the right lighting and stuff like that, bluebird day, you'll hit that perfect lighting on those wood ducks and get them to really stand out and pull away from that background. Um, those are pretty close to being out of the camera uh, I actually do lighten it a little bit just because the background's actually so dark, it's it's almost fake looking. But I try and blend them in just a little bit with that background because they pop out and it's they're bright. Those are that's a really bright bird in the right lighting. So the whites really stand out. And trying to expose for those darks and whites on a wood duck or pretty any duck that has white and darks is it's really hard to capture that perfect lighting on those. But um, so I kind of expose for the, the whites is what I expose for and then work the other colors as I come. I mean, the colors are still going to pop. When I use studio lighting, I'm actually, the only birds I really use studio lighting on are um, hummingbirds. I'll use a three to five flash setup and I'll set cameras in different directions and then four on the bird, uh, one on the background to get the colors to pop in the background. And that's just because I can run a really slow shutter speed, one one twenty-fifths of a second, and it, it'll still stop that motion blur of their wings. Uh, from the On a flash, you're running one sixteen thousandths of a second on the flash to really get those wings to stop. And that's when I'll use um, studio lighting, still outdoors, but then you just don't get the ambient. You just make sure there's no ambient light to ghosting their wings if you want the sharp wings and the tips and stuff like that but um that's pretty much the only situation i'll really use flash photography other than that i use i expose for my subject my subject only 
I can work with the background. Usually I try and go for a darker background, but I can work with highlights in the background and expose for those later. But my main, my main focus is exposing for that subject and getting that in sharp focus. What do you think is the most difficult thing for you in this whole thing? Is it the lighting or, you know, from when you started till now, I mean, everything is, you're learning a little bit about the animal behavior. You're learning your equipment. You're learning how to travel. You're learning how to sleep in your car, right? Without waking up <laughs> with a stiff neck. What, what's the most difficult or thing? Or setting off the car alarm. Setting yeah. off right. the car alarm. Uh, my, the most difficult thing is, yeah, lighting. Because it's so different every day, uh, multiple times a day, you're working lighting. Or if a subject goes under into a shadow, you got to expose for that shadow, or uh, waiting for him to come out of the shadow, which you never know, he might not. He, they bed down. They love shadows, so they'll bed down in those under trees and stuff like that. And then you have the dark or the real bright background, which it just doesn't work all the time. It can sometimes, um, but yeah, lighting is the hardest thing I think to to figure out because it's so different so dynamic in the photography world of where you're going to be um and then picking up like if you have fog and stuff like that you you pick up bad lighting or you pick up the haze of a fog which you might not see in your camera then you go home excited that you got incredible photos and they're they're really hazy from that fog that you didn't even notice that you've seen so it could be like humidity in the air heat waves that you're you're working with and then the lighting on top of that so lighting is the most difficult i think for me and then the editing, I mean, I'm, I'm not very good at editing, so it's always a new learning curve on editing, trying to keep up with anything that came out that's new. So, what's What do you use for your editing? Are you using Lightroom? Are you using Photoshop? Are you using, uh, what is it, Capture One? I use Photoshop. For me, it's the easiest to work with. I can do everything I need to do in my photo. If I do a, a landscape photo that I have to stitch together, Photoshop's the easiest way for me to work on all my images. I have used Lightroom uh, briefly and every now and then for photos, but most of the time I stick to Photoshop. That's what that's my number one go-to that I that I work with. I, I don't know if it's just because I'm familiar with it, more familiar with it, and that's what my dad has edited on and kind of showed me. But that's what I keep going back to is um, Photoshop. Not this cat. Not this cat. <laughs> you like Lightroom? <laughs> yeah, I try to keep it simple, but but if Mark I was here, he this. would agree with you. Yeah, exactly. He's a Photoshop dude. See, fo see, Lightroom is confusing for me. Photoshop is really easy laid out, but I guess it's it's. I've heard people that say Lightroom it's super easy for them, and Photoshop they can't figure out really that easy. I'm kind of the opposite. Photoshop is just. I, it's probably because I had hands-on training with my dad showing me and stuff. Here, do this, do this, and then I just brought it. He used to edit doing like a, almost like a dodging and burning kind of thing, and I actually used to do that. I got away with, from it the last year and a half or so I kind of I really got away from doing that because you're taking pixels away and stuff like that so um yeah I just kind of learned and started my own everybody has their own editing technique that they do and I think it really sets um photographers apart from each other because you'll be shoulder to shoulder photographing and then you get to see everybody's um stuff on social media or they'll send them to you and it's just it's awesome to see how many different photos you can get of the same animal in, in the same setting, but they look so different just from the editing techniques. What's the, uh, so a lot of people are really, they don't have an idea of how it, what it takes to go out and travel and shoot. You know, if you're planning trips and you're doing what, five, seven, 14 days, that's a lot of planning. And I'm assuming you're sleeping in your car 
in a lot of situations, but then you might be camping or you might be hitting a hotel here and there. Just give us an idea of how that goes for you and how that whole process has, you know, because that's a big part of this. If you're not rested up and if you're not in the right place, then, you know, it's all for naught. So you've got to get pretty good at traveling and getting to the right spot and getting in, you know, being comfortable to a certain yeah. degree, as com- comfortable as you can get. How do you, how do you do it? So I plan, like I said, eight month, r- roughly eight months in advance, just so I know exactly what I'm doing. I can get, if I'm going to rent gear, I can get everything ready to go. Um, but it's what I do. Like I do camp almost every situation I'm in, I camp. So I'll, I'll bring a tent. I drive, I'll fly. So I flew into Colorado last year and then this year, but most of the other uh, trips or actually every other trip I've ever done, I drive. Cause then I can sleep in the back of the car. If something happens to the tent and it, you're soaked, which that happened in Wyoming, uh, we had to, I had to sleep in the back of the car. And, uh, so then it's just about making, getting mattresses. I have, I'll bring air up mattresses if I'm sleeping in the tent and, cold weather dress for cold weather and be ready for it but i have slept in a vehicle where you wake up and you're sore and you don't feel like doing anything or you're sick and i was in colorado three years ago and i was sick on that trip for about a week and a half it was miserable but you still get up and do it every day you just don't have as much fun especially when you're trying to move around all day and making yourself more sick when you should be resting but when you're on a trip like that and you get sick you don't want to drive home that's about 15 hours 16 hours of a drive and you're not you don't want to waste the time it just makes for a really long drive home. But yeah, I camp a lot, uh, sleep in the vehicle. Um, on shorter trips, I sleep in the vehicle. On longer trips, I make sure I have a tent and I'm ready to go for those situations. Because on a tent, you can sleep a lot more comfortable. You can you bring a bigger tent. You can make it like a little home for 10, 14 days. Uh, Canada, I slept. And the hardest part about sleeping in a tent is when you're photographing the elk rut and you have elk bugling all night and you get no sleep because you just want to hear the elk. <laughs> So that's the hardest part about camping. And then I don't have all the stuff to where I can edit. So you want to edit all these photos and you can't edit all day. You're sleeping in a tent. I don't have, I have a laptop, but I don't edit from my laptop very often. Those kind of situations, you're like, oh gosh, I wish I had a computer I could edit right now and at least make my night go by a little quicker. And then it's a lot of times when I'm camping, like this time of year, uh, it's dark at 4.35 o'clock and you don't want to go sit in a tent all night. So then you join up with friends and buddies and go out to dinner and stuff like that and just hang out for the evening. It's pretty, those situations are really fun. But yeah, camping, then you kind of cook your own meals. You stay out in the field longer. I mean, most of the time towns aren't super close and you want to stay out in those fields for those certain situations. Every time you go into town, you're missing opportunities. So if you pack a sandwich and a, and a lunch, you could stay out in the field and sit on those animals and wait for that perfect situation that might present itself when you, if you didn't have a lunch and pack the right gear, you'd be sitting in town or charging batteries and stuff like that, which I have five batteries on me this year in Colorado and every one of them were dead. I actually got nervous that I was going to have to t- start using everybody else's cameras. <laughs> I forgot to charge my cameras and I was down to my last my last bar and it started flashing on me. I had a good hour of light left and I was starting to get a little nervous. So that's the other situation of camping in a vehicle is trying to keep up on your gear and getting your camera gear, like your uh, batteries charged and keeping up on that kind of stuff. Then I don't know about you guys when you sleep in the back of the vehicle, but when I sleep in a vehicle, that thing is trashed. It looks like a, it's, it's a disaster. The first day I'm organized the, on the drive there, but once that first animal pops up, oh my gosh, it's, it's a disaster. <laughs> it looks like a hurricane came through the car. So, yeah, I can yeah. speak for Ron. 
<laughs> He's a bit of a I wish you would <laughs> So you've said a couple of times that you actually rent gear. What what are you looking to do when you're getting out there and renting gear? Do you go is it based off of the species that you're gonna go after and it's like, oh man, I need a big piece of glass for this shoot or are you just trying to get a different body just so you have multiple bodies or what's your process there? Um, so when I rent gear, it's usually I rent a bigger lens. So if, if I'm photographing a bigger subject or a more um, aggressive subject, I can keep my distance up between uh, my, me and them. Most of the time, I'm not, I don't worry about that too often, but I'm actually running, if I'm renting equipment, it's usually a camera body also that I can run a higher ISO. Um, or a bigger, bigger megapixel. If I want to say, if I want to print even bigger, I'll run a bigger megapixel camera. But usually with the bigger megapixel, I didn't. It doesn't. The ISO wasn't that great. So um, yeah, I run. I'll rent a couple different camera bodies. I rented the, cam, the Canon 5D Mark IV, which is great, great ISO. So I've rented that, and if I know I'm going to be in a situation uh, like in a winter situation with little l- less lighting, and I know I want to go a little bit higher ISO, then I'll rent a full frame. Uh, camera for those situations and then i'll rent so i've rented like the 600 millimeter prime the 500 millimeter and everything like that so in just certain situations i get myself into i like to be able to have versatility because then on the 600 if i need a crop sensor i can throw my 7d on that and still have if, if a subject moves in closer i can either go full frame or i can use my 70 to 200 and stuff like that so i photograph moose where I think it was two years ago, and uh, they would be in and out, in and out. So going from full frame to um, crop sensor and then being able to use my zoom lenses and the zoom lenses that I was using, I could just walk back a few steps and get that my, my subject, the full subject in the frame and fill the frame. And in those lighting situations, it was a lot less because they're in denser trees, so you're running lot lower lighting and higher ISO. So I'd rent the 5D Mark IV for those situations. And that's actually one of my favorites that to rent, that and the 500mm F4 is awesome to rent. That one you can handhold just long enough to get the shots and move out of the way and, and be versatile if, I, if you don't have to, or if you don't use a tripod all the time. I try to use a tripod, but some situations you're moving and you, wanna, you, don't, you can't use a tripod the whole time. So you're the 500, hanging over the dock of a irrigation reservoir it's a little tougher to manage the tripod yeah it is <laughs> i couldn't imagine having that on a tripod i probably <laughs> have just probably have thrown it off and <laughs> did what we did yep did anybody get behind the scene shots of that of you guys hanging off over the deck Doc? i certainly hope not yeah that was that would have been a funny situation to watch did you just take so. turns hanging over the the edge or what or no, you all was, hanging over we were all whoever built on tech Testing the durability of that railing. <laughs> yeah, exactly what it was. Whoever <laughs> built it did a good job. It, it withheld three people. <laughs> so on the renting gear thing, do you think there's a lot of people? I mean, it's it's kind of a trend nowadays, and I think it's super smart, right? Because if you can rent something for whatever, 200 bucks or 300 bucks for a couple of weeks, that's way less money to put out than going out and buying your own 500 you know, right. really, it's nice to have your own 500 if you can afford it, but there's ample opportunities to rent that kind of stuff and just have it as needed. Or if, you, if you're if you planning like you do eight months out, then you know, hey, I need this budget 
I've, I can get this lens and this is what I'm shooting and that's what I want. I'm just curious if a lot of people even know about it. I'm, I'm, I know there's a lot of people that know about it because we use it all the time too. But our world, the photography world, uh, wildlife photography world, I just don't hear people talk about it too much. That's kind of interesting that you do it. Do you know of a lot of other people that do it? I don't. I've only met, I think, one other person that actually has rented a camera gear. And they they do it just because the simple fact, like you said, it's, it's a lot cheaper. And you're up to up to date on all the gear. So when I'm writing gear, it's the newest stuff that's coming out. It's not it's not like a Gen 1 uh, 500mm lens. It's actually a Gen 2 that you're renting in. It's mint condition. Everything's flawless. That works. And I mean, so you're renting up to up to date gear that you don't have to buy. That'd be, I mean, you're looking at 15, 20 grand to upgrade to that stuff when you could rent it for, like you said, two, three, four hundred dollars for a couple weeks. I mean, it's just, it's a great opportunity to get the best gear you can get. And it's an affordable price. I mean, people say, yeah, you rent it 10, 12 times and you just bought it. Yeah, that's 12, 10, 12 times with the newest updated gear because every three, four years, these camera companies are coming out with something newer and flashier. So, I mean, you, if you had to upgrade that every four or five years, then the cost is just completely, it's just outrageous. But so when you're renting, you're using the newest updated stuff and you get to pick what you want. So you could be as versatile as you want. You're not stuck to a 500 millimeter lens that you just spent a ton of money on, which there's nothing wrong with it. I would love to have those lenses, but renting for me is the way to go in the situations that I present to my, give myself for like the, the trips I travel on and stuff like that. Well, here's what I like about it too is a lot of times we're traveling with gear and we're pretty full, right? We have a full bag of whatever we're taking, but then it's like, oh, it'd be nice to have a different body or it'd be nice to have a different lens or we need a specialty lens. I just don't physically have the room on a plane with all my other stuff that I'm taking to actually take it. So a lot of times we'll rent something and have it sent to the hotel we're going to be at use it and then we ship it before we ever fly back and it's really awesome that way because you you're eliminating that travel with with so much gear and it's come right. in super handy so many times for us yeah and that's exactly what i do because you rent it it starts the day that you receive it so if i do have it come to my house it actually shows up usually a day early but like you said if you can get it to go to like the local ups or the hotel you're at, that's the way to go because then you can send it right back from there and you're not traveling with it because when you travel, I mean, your, your vehicle's packed to the core. You, you want to have the right gear and not just the camera gear, you want to have the right clothing and you want to be dressed for any situation you're going to be presented out in the field. So I've been in situations where it was sunny one day and the next day you're, it's raining or snowing and 20, 30 degrees, 40 degrees and you're like, okay, I'm glad I brought this instead of just a jacket and a sweater or a long sleeve you're you're you want to dress for each each trip just to make sure you're going to have that right gear and if you can save room by renting equipment and have it showing up to where you're going to be at that's the best situation you can have i agree 100 percent. the other thing that i like about it is it's and you've already touched on it is you have the latest and greatest and i don't know about you guys but i cannot keep up I cannot keep up with all the camera bodies and all the lenses. And I just don't, even if I had all the money to do it, I just don't, you're going to end up with so much that you probably would use on specialty situations. You know, I just, the, what the new Sony a nine's coming out or it's out actually the a nine Mark two 
You got the 1DX Mark III that's coming out here shortly. You've got a couple new lenses coming. I just don't know how to keep up with all this stuff. If I <laughs> bought it, then what do I do with all this old stuff? Now you got to deal with the time it takes to deal to manage that stuff and either sell it or donate it or whatever you're going to do. So I think for those situations, more and more, it's on our radar just to just to rent it. We were just on a shoot, and uh, I was shooting my trusty old Canon setup just because I know I'm money with that. I know I can get the shots, and I don't worry about it. But you know, you're always intrigued by this new stuff, and you're intrigued by what you hear from other people. And if you guys listen to the podcast we did with Darren Carroll, who switched over to to Sony, um, he was actually on a working with us only he was shooting something different but he and i would talk a little bit and that new sony a9 mark ii is awesome and i wish i would have had it and i should have rented it because that would have been the ticket if i buy it then do i take an you know that means i'm taking like six camera bodies to one camera shoot and or one photo shoot and that's just too much gear to manage and you don't need all that (laughs) but you always want to have a backup situation and you want to have um the cameras you're going to use and then a backup. And then if you're taking two, you're taking Canon and you're taking Sony, that means I had four bodies just for that. And then if I'm doing video, there's probably additional, you know, something set up in there. So I don't know. I like that renting. I like the idea of it. Like you said, it's, you're constantly got the latest and greatest. And, uh, when you're done, you just put, they make it so easy to send it back to If as long as you keep that box that showed up in, you're you're good to go yep yep the other thing about renting is there's a certain curiosity when all this stuff does update there's a certain amount of curiosity and i want to know what it's like to shoot with that other system and i think courtney you had talked about you know what are these other cameras like how well do they do in low light that kind of thing sony for instance has made a lot of progress and it's something that I'm curious about, but I don't want to jump out and make another change because I just changed from Canon to Nikon here a couple of years ago. So renting gives you that opportunity to kind of stick your toe in the water instead of diving clear in. You mean you're not switching cameras every six months? No. <laughs> Why not? There's no profit in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, but that's, I mean, that's just exactly it though, Mike. When some of these changes take place, you do want to kind of see what it's like. Plus, when I do workshops, I want to know what those other systems are like to work with. How do I navigate the menus, that kind of thing. So if somebody shows up with Canon or Nikon, I'm money. I know those two inside and out. But if they show up with a Sony, it's going to take me a while to get them set up the way they need to be set up. So it also allows that familiarity with those different systems when I'm when I'm taking other photographers out to get them hopefully the shots of their lifetime. So it it does help in that aspect. So it it does offer a lot of flexibility, and I more than just you know being on the trip of a lifetime and and wanting that upgraded equipment. There's a lot of different aspects that you can look at with it. There is. I mean, and that's a way, if, you, if you're going to ever upgrade or move to a different company, whether it's Sony, Nikon, Canon, um, it's the best way to get familiar with all of them, test all different companies and see what you really like and what works for you. 
I mean, Sony isn't for everybody. Canon's not for everybody. Nikon's not for everybody. So just getting familiar with all those ca those cameras and renting them instead of buying them and then, well, I don't like it. So renting, you can really you can really pick each like the body, the camera body or bodies that's going to work for you. And even lenses, uh, lenses are huge. So I mean, if you think a 600 pr prime lens is going to be the perfect situation, rent it, test it out first, and then see if you really like it because. I've talked to a lot of people that are like, yeah, the 600 is like the dream lens for everybody. And then they get it and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm overpowered or it's heavy. I don't, it's, I don't want to pack it around. Well, you just spent a lot of money on a lens that you could have rented for pennies compared to what you paid for it. And you could have figured out on a trip or so that you don't, it's not for you. You could have went with a different lens or a more versatile lens, like a two to 600 or one to six, 150 to 600 lens, zoom lenses or anything. But yeah, just using like those rental companies as a, using them to your uh, benefit in situations. Yeah, let me just give you a little snapshot into the shoot I just got back from because I, like I was saying earlier, I, I did have my Canon and I did have Sony and I thought, man, I'm going to shoot Sony a lot because the chances of these things getting blown up huge is, is pretty good, right? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm dealing with a, and I'm so bad at this, I don't know what the megapixels are, but like on the Sony a7 III, R3, whatever it is, I think it's 42 megapixels. I don't know, it's something like the 5D4, right? And then the a7, what, a7 IV, R4? I think it's like 60-something. And then I really liked the high ISO performance, so I thought, okay, I'm going to shoot a lot with this, and then I'll and then, but I had a 100 to 400 and a 70 to 200 for my lenses for those cameras, and I thought that'll get get what I need. What I found out really quickly is with what I was shooting, the speed wasn't there with those cameras, the focus speed. Now I've only used an A9 once and I didn't really use it. I just played with somebody's just out in the field where they said they just handed it to me and said, "Hey, check this out." So I was just testing the focus and it's really the speed of the acquisition of the shot, right? That was so fast and then my Canon is so fast that I know I'm going to get it because I can I know what the camera can do, but one thing I was kind of disappointed with is with the A7 Mark what is a7r4 super awesome if things are moving slow which generally with wildlife you've got time so i think it's a it's a good wildlife camera especially if you want those big wildlife or big uh, image sizes but i could not focus fast enough on what we were shooting and we were doing sports for half of the shoot was sports and half of it was fishing the fishing is it worked pretty good but i still found myself favoring the Canon, and maybe it's just because I'm just way more familiar with that. The other thing that the differences between Canon and Sony, so for Canon, you have to to change your focus point, you know, and I'm constantly moving my focus point just to redirect the composition, right? And that's one of the things I see on new photographers more than anything is everybody centers everything just because you don't move that focus point enough, right? So your compositions are always centered. Whatever your subject is, it's always in the middle. Well, in order to change that, you've got to move that focus point around, and you got to be pretty much Johnny on the spot to get that thing going. With Canon, you have to activate the sensors by hitting a button, 
then you can go over to your thumb dial and move that sensor around. And then you're limited to, I would say maybe half of the, half of the sensor where you have the, the focus point that you can move around. The Sony's, there's no activating nothing. You just start moving that thing whenever you want to. And then your the range that it has is huge. So I can go almost to the corner, bottom corner of the screen and still have a focus point that's active. And I, so I like that much better on the, the Sony stuff. And it was it gives you so much more flexibility. If you can constantly be shooting, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, I used to be the back button focus guy, right? So what that does is it takes my thumb off of the focus. On the So this is with Canon. So I'm taking my thumb off of the focus, back button focus. I'm going down, I'm moving my focus point around, coming back to the focus. And with wildlife, you can lose a shot just like that because of the time that it took for you to go move your focus point. Mark's MO and my, my new MO is... I'm using the the trigger button to use my focus so I can leave my finger, my thumb on the the active focus point and moving that on a moment's notice. And I've found myself way more productive when I do that. So that's just a couple of examples of good and bad Sony versus Canon, but I'm not comparing apples to apples because I think if I'm going to compare apples to apples, I got to do the... 1DX Mark II or Mark III, the new one that's coming out, and the A9. I think those two cameras are pretty much on par with one another, so I still need to get an A9. Because when I did use the one that somebody let me borrow just out in the field, that focus acquisition was super fast. So if you can get that super fast focus acquisition, along with being able to move your sensor anywhere you want on the on the screen or you know on the film or on the sensor. I think that's going to win out. So hopefully it'll be interesting to see what this new 1DX Mark IV or was it 1DX Mark III, I think is the next one. If it gives you more focus points that you can move around, that would be really cool. Now the downside to Sony is the reason I don't want to go full on Sony is they don't have, I love my 200 to 400, 200 to 400 with a one four built in F4. I, I love that lens. It's a little heavy and it's a little big, but still I can do anything I want with that. Generally anything I want. And the range you have is amazing. Well, they kind of have that in Sony with the 200 to 600, but you're dealing with the 5.663 on your app or, you know, on your low point of the aperture. And sometimes that, for this last shoot I just finished with, that wouldn't have been enough. I would have been shooting at 5,000 5, ISO if I was shooting at 6.3. So if Sony would come out with the 200 to 400 f4, and if the A9 is as fast as I, as I know it is from just using it, that might be the ultimate wildlife setup. But there's a bunch of variables, right? I mean, there's just so many things to try out. But I think the answer to all that is what you were just talking about, Courtney. Is it's that whole rent, rent it, and Ron, you step, you touched on it too. Just rent it and use it and see if it actually does perform to those standards that you're used to. Yeah. Yeah, I used, it was pretty cool. I got a guy I met out in the field. He's like, here, use my two to 400 with the 1.4 built in. That was, man, that lens was awesome. I've never used it before. I never rented it. And um, I used it and the versatility of that lens was incredible on the on those deer. So I got myself into some situations where I really needed the full 
the full lens or I needed to back off and even go to just the 200 and put it at one because they were getting close. But when I really needed it, I could flip it over to 1.4 built in, didn't have to change anything or add anything. It was, that was an awesome lens. It was, and it was a tack sharp lens also. So I had the privilege of using that for, I think I used it most of the trip, <laughs> uh, probably five days out of the seven days or eight days that I was in Colorado. So, yeah. One other thing that that lens does for you is I, you know, I'll shoot with an art director a lot. And as I'm shooting, you know, I'm just showing them the back of the camera just to show images. And on this last shoot, what they would say is, Hey, can you get a little bit tighter or do we need to take and reset everything? And I'm like, Nope, you just flip on the one four and you know, all of a sudden you have that shot as as opposed to taking down your setup, moving in closer and reset, you know, we're just saving time, which ultimately saves that client money or we get more shots because we can use that time that it would have taken us to switch to go get more stuff so yeah the versatility on that lens and i'm sure sony's going to be in that they'll be coming out with something like that because in talking with darren over the last week he he said there's so many people just like me you know that wants that before they make that full-on switch that yep it's and, it's definitely on their radar. Yeah, and it seems like Sony is pretty good at picking up on that kind of stuff. Like if people ask for it, they kind of deliver it, and they're really good at it. The, so I mean, if they could come out with some like a two hundred, two even a two to four hundred with that built in, and they're usually pretty good at keeping their gear pretty light too. I know you mentioned the two to four hundred was heavy with the one point four built in. Gee, I don't know about you guys, but when you're photographing, you're hand holding. I hold my breath. I don't know what it is, but I hold my breath, and I feel like I'm going to pass out sometimes. If I'm not on a tripod, I'd probably, I'd probably pass out. <laughs> so, yeah, there is some lenses that are heavy. So, that's yeah. one of those lenses. It is one of those lenses. And I, I rented, and we talked about this on an earlier podcast, I did rent a 400-2.8 not too long ago, a version 2 Canon. And that, I was amazed about how light that that lens was. For a four hundred two eight, it was way lighter yeah. than my four hundred two hundred to four. The new one. The new one, yeah. Yeah. Is is that a Gen three or is that a two? I don't know. I think it was. It was okay. whatever the newest one was. It's probably three. Three. Is yeah. a three? Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I know there was a guy out in the field. He had the six hundred um, f four, and it was the three. And geez, I held that thing. That was actually incredibly light. I think it's only six and a half pounds now. And I was like, wow, that's that's light for a six hundred millimeter f four. Yep. Hand so, hold a 600 for that yeah. long. It's crazy. Yep. And he, the guy that was shooting it was hand holding it during his trip most of the time. So, I mean, if you can hand, if you can hand hold lenses anymore, that gives you even more versatility than, because there's some situations you can't, you just don't have time for the tripod or you can't level it quick enough and you'll miss a shot. I've missed a few shots trying to set up a tripod. Even if I have it preset, there's just that one thing that sets it off and you're, you got to adjust. So if you can start shooting stuff handheld, the lighter they're making these lenses, you can at least rack off a few shots and get the shot. But I'm not saying I would, I'd want to handhold it all day long, but in certain situations, being able to handhold a lens that isn't 8, 10, 11 pounds, I mean, that helps out tremendously getting some of those shots and being fast. So you, we were just talking about tripods, and obviously when you're shooting video, most of the time you need a tripod if you're going to, especially if you're using a long lens. How much video do you shoot? You know, I saw some stuff on your Instagram page, so I know you do it, but do you shoot video uh, a lot, or do you see yourself moving more towards video, or are you that guy that just is, 
man, I really like stills and I'm just going to stick with it. And if something ca- captures my fancy, I'll shoot video, but otherwise I'm, I'm a stills guy. Yeah. So I'm, I mainly stick to stills. The only, uh, I, fo- I video, if I'm in a certain, certain situation, if I got tons and tons of shots of one animal and it's a, it's a situation where you're like, you know what, I'm going to film for a little bit just to kind of get, um, video of that animal. Uh, most of the time I'll do that. Or if they're in a situation where I don't like the scenery so much and for a still, but it would still make a cool video. I'll shoot a little bit of video for that, but for going to video, I don't think I'll ever go to video. Um, I'm, I'm more of a still person. I like, I like taking stills. I like being able to go in and edit each individual, which I know you can do clip by clip on, on video, but, um, I like being able to go through the stills and take the picture and really, really show what the image is, uh, in a, or what the reaction is, or what would it be? The behavior behavior, right. Uh, is of that animal in a photo. I, it just tells a full story without even videoing and taking uh, video. I don't, I don't mind taking video. I do like it in search, certain situations. Um, like, like for instance, that owl, the great gray, it was inside a tree with branches across its face while I could focus on the owl and like manual focus and video. And it looked really cool. If I took stills of it, you'd see the branch across its eye, but in the video, you really can't see it. It's pretty blurred out. Um, but so in those kind of situations, I do take advantage of a little bit of video. Um, my camera doesn't do great in video. So, um, I've rented the Sony, uh, a seven three, and use that. Most things are pretty good for video. Those are really fun. If I was going to do more video, I would lean strictly towards Sony only and probably switch over to Sony. But as of right now, it's hard to switch when you have money invested in one, one, one setup and then go to a whole nother, uh, company and set up for those. You just so, need to start playing the lottery. I try, <laughs> but I'm what, not very good. <laughs> that's what we've gone to for financial planning for the podcast is, uh, Know, buying a Powerball ticket once in a while. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hasn't, hasn't panned out. I know. I wouldn't be working if I if I won the lottery. You'd probably see me in the field a little <laughs> bit more often. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. But, well, Courtney, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. But one thing that we missed up front that I'd like to talk about: you're a fairly new photographer. Uh, you've been at this what about five years? You said, yeah, roughly five years. So you're you're kind of finding your groove as we we skip pro tips up front. So as a as a tip to people that are getting started, what would you what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give them? Um, and it doesn't have to be advice; it can be equipment too. Yeah, it can be gear. It can be anything. My biggest thing is is um, get gear that's gonna be. Uh, versatile right for the situation and know that gear and um like michael said uh move don't be afraid to move that focus point around like i know you briefly mentioned it i move my focus point constantly so i mean getting the right composition is a huge part of photography to really bring out your images and then pulling your subject away from that background i know like antlers and horns are a real big part of the subject but it's also the eye make sure that eye is in sharp focus on the subject and you can really enhance your your photography Excellent. i think that focus point is the number one thing that i see on new photographers is everything is centered all it the is, time yep. and it's 
and that's fine. I mean, but that's something you got to start somewhere, right? So you start there and if you can perfect that, then that's great. But once you've perfected that, then I think what you need to do is you're going to miss shots too by doing this because it takes time. And until you get really used to it, until you get just that whole thing dialed in and you've got that memorization of where every button is and you just know, but I'd say perfect the, the center focus and don't mess with it. Just get really good there. Then start moving that thing around. And I think you'll be really pleased with the results of actually moving that focus point, recomposing and getting that shot. And I think with wildlife, especially a lot of these big game animals that we shoot, it's generally pretty easy. I mean, you generally have time to get that thing. So it's the best thing you can do is find a, you know, one thing that, really would be super easy is and i was just in florida on a shoot well you get a lot of these shorebirds that are just sitting there fishing right and they're gonna sit there in that same spot for 15 minutes something you know sometimes longer sometimes shorter but you've got plenty of time to play around and try different compositions and see what works include the reflection put it on the right put it on the left put it on the top you know just start messing around and and really get proficient in those situations and then when you've got some action going, then you're way more proficient and faster at getting that one shot that you may miss, or you, I guarantee you, you will miss it as you're getting better at it, but it's always going to make for a much better shot. Yeah, it does. And you can accomplish a lot of that through cropping. And I think a lot of people on Instagram do that where you just take a shot and it's centered and then you just crop it later. And nobody's going to know because of the size we look at stuff on social media. It really doesn't matter. But if you're going to do like you do and sell prints and like Ron does and sell prints or do stuff with magazines, they do have their limits and they do have their restrictions as far as size. You can't have the dot of an animal that you cropped in and got this great shot of a cropped in. That'll never make a cover of a magazine or it'll never blow up to a 24 by 36 print. But just, just there's not enough information in that shot. So I think that's yep. a really good point. I think that's a really good pro tip, and it's a really something to – you don't have to be perfect at it. Just get practice at it, and then you will get perfect yeah. at it. Get fluent with moving it around. Even just two or three to the left, two, three to the right, just moving around. Follow that eye around a little bit, and it'll really I think it will really help enhance your photos. And the, Watching where that animal is going into the photo – if it's moving from right to left, then move your focus point and anticipate that he's going to be doing that and get ahead of the game. Because um, you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to be sitting there, like you said, moving your stuff. Like if you're a back button focus guy like I am, I don't want to be sitting there moving my focus point and then miss it. And well, then you just moved it for no reason. But if you can get ahead of the game and move your focus point and kind of anticipate what that animal is going to be doing, which is comes to the effect of knowing your subject and being out there watching your subject over time, you'll you'll get familiar with kind of what they're going to do and what their what their behavior is. So you can kind of anticipate what you're going to eventually, hopefully, be photographing. If unless something completely changes all of a sudden, but most of the time you can really anticipate what's going to be happening next. If you talked to me last year and the previous twenty years, I'd have been all on that back focus back focus button with you. But I'll tell you what, we're talking milliseconds with some of these situations, right? That you've got to yep. be Johnny on the spot and you better have that thing. Try your try your trigger finger focus 
I am. I'm going to try that. I'm actually going to go out this next weekend and I am going to try that and see how, how it's it's super hard. It's to get used to because you've done this back button focus for so long. And then all of a sudden it's, so one thing that forced me to do that was when I got that a seven R four camera, I hate the setting. I am not the settings guy in these cameras. I learn them (laughs) over time, but when I get a new camera, I just absolutely hate going through. I know a lot of people just love that. And I wish I was that person, but I'm not. I just want to get it and go shoot. That's exactly how I am. <laughs> so this camera, actually, the back button works, and also the trigger works. And, you know, you start noticing that. And I'm, and so now I, I was, like, relying way more on this my trigger finger. And okay. I, I think I was way more productive when I was now, shooting that camera. When, when you're shooting something like that, when you have both of them running – does it recompose? So when you recompose, do you just have to hold it down halfway? Is that yeah. what you're doing? Yeah. And then you can still recompose. It's not going to refocus. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And that's part of that whole learning, you know, and I think different yeah. cameras probably do it a little bit different. So you could probably do it, you know, an ace or the, whatever the 7D is probably gonna be a little different than the a seven three or whatever. But yeah, I would play around with it. Mark has been that guy forever. And it wasn't until we were on a podcast talking about it where he was, who else was it, Ron? It was Chaz, Charles Glass. Me and, yeah, I've, I've always done it that way because the other thing is, is your, your thumb on the Canon system, well, and Nikon too, I can set the, the set button that's in the middle of that wheel on the back. I set that, if I hold the set button in, I can change my ISO. So I never have to take my eye away. So I can recompose mm-hmm. Uh, with the toggle i can use a set button to change iso never have to take my eye away from the viewfinder but yeah Chaz was that way mark's that way well i didn't know you were that way i thought you were the back yeah. button guy like me no i well, i never could understand why people were so staunch about the back button because you take that ability away but you can i mean you can still use the the uh, af lock in the back if you are going to recompose, like you were just talking about, Courtney, if you hold that down, it locks the focus so you can move wherever you need to move from there. I've never, ever used that button. Really? <laughs> I, I'm telling you what, I'm the world's worst at figuring this stuff out. I, I just, I learn it because I have to learn it, not because I want to learn it. <laughs> Well, what's Michael, your, what's your pro tip? My pro tip? Well, I was just going to ask you what's your pro tip. But I'll do well, it, and I'm then gonna... you can go. Okay, go ahead. As usual, mine is always equipment, right? Because I'm always doing these trips, and I always find little things. Well, this last trip, we were on boats for all day. We didn't come back to, to anywhere on land. And we were in these bass boats, which are not set up for power and all that jazz. And I had my digital tech with me, so we were downloading as we went just because I wanted to give the client a chance to see images as we were going. And they could look on the back of the camera, but sometimes it's not like looking at a computer screen. So I had to come up with a way to power these this laptop for a whole day. And I did put up a post on Instagram about this, but uh, for people that didn't see that, uh, I picked up one of these Goal Zero batteries. And it was just a I'm just trying to, what I did is I went to the internet and I just typed in uh, battery for charging laptops out in the field. 
And what we found, I bought a couple, I bought two of them. One was an off-brand, I think it was 60 bucks. And then I bought this Goal Zero, which was, I think, like 120 bucks. And I'll tell you what, this Goal Zero is awesome. Now, we were just using a 13-inch 13, 13 Mac, I guess it's just a MacBook, not a MacBook Pro. Maybe it's MacBook Pro, I don't know. They probably have different power power uses or the speed in which the battery drains is probably different on those but whatever it was the 13 inch this thing we were able to get through a full day with the laptop until it ran out and then plug this in and it worked great so i would highly if you're going to be in a situation like that where you have you know if you're in a car which is a lot of stuff we do you always have access to a car at the end of the day or in the morning um, or when you're actually downloading your images, you don't have it with you in the field. This was just one of those situations where we were out in the field on a boat. And obviously we're not going to take a generator at that point, right? Because you're just out in a boat. You don't want to listen to a generator all day. Plus you have limited real estate on those boats. So this ended up being the ticket and, uh, I would highly recommend. And I think this particular little unit, I could actually charge with solar panels if I wanted to. I think it would take for freaking ever to charge it with the solar panels, unless you had some of those big ones, which I know Gold Zero has some great big panels, and that would be kind of sweet. It'd be interesting to see how long it took to charge that. But that's all you're going to get is a laptop. Like on my RED cameras, you know, we use those big Anton Bauer batteries. I don't think, I bet you this is equivalent to one of those batteries, so I might get one charge out of it. So I don't know if it's a long-term solution for serious backcountry stuff. And then you're dealing with weight too, but that situation being on a boat, it was awesome. So if you're if you're in that predicament, which I don't know how many people end up being in that, it, it did work. It worked well. Excellent. Mine, I, I'm I'm switching up based on our converse, the conversation that we've had today, and it's good that we did this at the end because another use case for renting lenses is. If you look at a lot of these rental companies, they're changing gear out all the time. And it's not real heavily used gear. They do a check on it every time. And I know one in particular, if you go to lensrentals.com, they've also got a branch of the business that sells their used gear. So to save people money, take a look at some of this gear that they're selling. Because that 200 to 400 that you guys have been talking about with Canon, that's what, a $12,000 lens, I believe, new? Right in there, yeah. If you buy it used from the rental company, you're going to pay about sixty-five to seventy-five hundred dollars. That comes with a one-year warranty. It's been gone through by their technicians, uh, people that know what they're doing, know what they're looking at. They grade the lens. They tell you how much life they think has got left in it, and it comes with a warranty from the manufacturer not just from the rental company. So it is a good option for somebody who's looking at making a change or maybe looking to upgrade equipment. To I always suggest that people buy used if they're on a budget. Um, but you have to be very careful how you do that. And this is one option that makes it a little bit safer to do so, is to buy from one of these reputable rental companies uh, for a very discounted rate. Yep. So that's going to be my pro tip. So along with that, that's funny that you uh, said that. So Lens Authority, I think, is the one that goes through Lens Rental. Actually, yep. just last week, I actually, or just two days ago, I um, bought one of their used tripods for half the price of it, brand new. They had it on, they had it for sale 
and it was half the price. I went and bought like uh, the Enduro um, carbon fiber tripod. And yeah, it was half the price used and they just upgrading equipment. So I went on there, seen what tripods they had for sale and I bought it. And like you said, it's a great, it's, it's like almost half price. So it's a great way and great tool to buy new or used equipment, but in like new condition. Let me add to that too, because what we've done, we rent a lot of gear from these guys, especially when we're doing these, these shoots for clients, they will actually give you a price. If you use a lens and you're like, I love this lens, everything I'm getting out is money. You can just send them your credit card and buy that lens. You don't have to send it back. And I know my guys that I work with, a couple of two or three of these videographers that I work with, they've done that a couple of times. The cool thing about that is you know, you, you know what the, the lens does, right? You've had a chance to use it for however long you've been shooting. It comes with a hard case and everything that you need. It's pretty sweet to end up with that. The other little story I have about that, I was, I was shooting with a guy, and I guess it's the same along the same lines, but... I was shooting a guy with a guy in a, uh, last year, and he was using that 200 to 400, and he was killing it. Everything was sharp. He was just getting everything he wanted. He loved it. He did that. He just bought it. He just said, I'm not sending this back. He called him up, how much? And he just bought it right on the spot. And I don't think he got a smoking deal on it because it wasn't necessarily used. It was still in their arsenal, so he's still going to pay a pretty top dollar for it. But he knew you know i had heard some people say that they're 200 to 400 lenses and i know different people are different about how sharp is sharp or how picky they are right so and he was one of those guys i've never had a problem you know mine was sharp and maybe i just lucked out but some of them apparently weren't quite as sharp as the others but like i say everybody's perspective on that is different but he was so dialed into that lens that he just bought it on the spot. And he may have saved 500 bucks because it had been used. But that's the other thing that's cool about that is you just buy that right yeah. off. But you don't even have to send it back. Excellent. Well, as always, we want to thank everybody for joining us. Please go to our Instagram, uh, YouTube channel, subscribe, hit the bell. And as always... Enjoy your time in the great outdoors. Thanks for listening to Wild and Exposed. No matter what platform you're listening to us on, please take the time to follow along and subscribe and to give us that positive rating, that five-star review or the thumbs up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you these podcasts on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.